I think we have bought into a myth about the nuclear family. Hmm. That's that's where I start. Yeah. Is I think that there's this cultural ideal that has infected our imaginations in America and has taught us that the ideal is to have mom and dad, 2.5 kids, you know, and a picket fence and a, and a minivan. Hello, my friends, and welcome to a very special Author's Spotlight edition of the Dig News Streams podcast. I'm your host, Dave Capozzi. I'm joined by my dear friend, T.C. Moore. T.C. is a graffiti artist and theology nerd. He's the lead pastor of Roots, a Moravian community, and serves court-involved youth and young adults with restorative justice practices. Since Jesus liberated him from gang life as a teenager, T.C. has developed mentoring programs, planted churches, and worked in community-based nonprofits all across the country for over two decades. He's a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary's Center for Urban Ministerial Education in Boston, and he lives in St. Paul, Minnesota with his wife, Oshida, and their three children. And he is now the author of his first book, Forged, Following Jesus into a New Kind of Family. If you would like to keep up with the podcast, subscribe to whatever platform you're using to listen right now, and you can find a consistent conversation happening over on TikTok if you search for my name, Dave Capozzi, and on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Dig New Streams Podcast. Without further ado, my conversation with T.C. Moore. So like you've yeah. held, always had this sense that community yeah. is essential yeah. for thriving. And like, I that's think, sort of where I get what forged is sort of based off of. Yeah. I think there's a complex relationship between Pentecostalism and evangelicalism hmm. because Pentecostals didn't start out as evangelicals, right? They didn't become part of the national association of evangelicals until after world war two. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, I did not realize. So it was... initially they were outsiders. Initially yeah. they were a lot more collectivist and a lot more mystical, mm. less inerrancy, more Holy Spirit led. Yeah. And then post World War II, they sort of wanted to get in with the with the other guys. They they wanted to be part of the club, yeah. right? And so they conformed. In fact, they were pacifist at first. Yes, right. Pentecostals were pacifists. And then after World War II, they were like, you know what? We're, I think we're down with just war now. And do you think it was basically because of World War II oh, yeah. and Hitler? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 A bunch a bunch of denominations went that way. Yeah. They said, you know, when it comes to Hitler, there comes a time when you just have to use violence. Yeah. Like there's no, there's no other choice. Yeah. And so I say that because I came to faith in the Pentecostal tradition. Yeah. And my home church had a very strong sense of collectivist culture. Mm. There was there was a there was we're part of something bigger. We're part of the body of Christ. We had 55 different nationalities in my home church. Because it was the University of Illinois and yeah. the church sat across the street from international student housing. Wow. So so my church is one of those churches that had all the flags yeah. and was like we celebrate diversity. We celebrate yeah. being a global a part of a global church, right? Mm. So I felt like this collectivist sense of the body of Christ 
in immediately. That's how yeah. I came to faith was in this collectivist thing. And then, you know, went to Bible college in the South New and Orleans, in the right? South. Yeah. New Orleans. And in the South, Pentecostalism was much different. Mm. There was, there was not so much of that, that collectivist, we're part of the global body of Christ. It was more about money and power. Mm. There was a lot of prosperity gospel mixed into the Pentecostalism. Yeah. There was a lot of, you know, gamesmanship and, you know, one upping each other in gifts and trying to be out, out prophecy each other, <laughs> out, out prophesy <laughs> each other, you know? And so I was really turned off by Pentecostalism in the South. You know, I was yeah. just like, and, and that's, and that's in Bible college is also where I started asking questions. Yeah. I started going, wait a second. Do I really believe that speaking in tongues is the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy spirit? Mm. Why, why do I believe that? <laughs> and when I, and when I looked deeply into it, I was like, I don't think this holds water. Yeah. You know, and my yeah. professors hated that. Oh man. I they can did attest not to that. Yeah, they did not. <laughs> they did not want me asking questions like that. I, I I still remember saying, "Wait a second, you know, there's instances in the Book of Acts where people are filled with the Holy Spirit and they don't speak in tongues." And they're like, mm. "No, there's not." And I'm like, "Yes, there is. Mm. No, there's not." It says they spoke the word of God bully. It doesn't say they spoke in tongues. It says they prophesied. It doesn't say they spoke in tongues. This and is my professor this, just just like la 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 la. We this don't is actually you. this is my experience of you too. And I met you after New Orleans. I met you in Boston. But you did the you were doing the same thing. My very first experience of you was you challenging a history prof. Curry. Who, yeah, Curry <laughs> yeah. was like, you know, um, and I think it had to do oh man, I think I think I remember. It had to do <laughs> with the social gospel gospel and Rauschenbusch. And he said something about the guy not having a high Christology. Are you like, are you kidding me? He had a very high Christology. He gave based his life off of it. So you're always, you were always challenging these like authority figures in a way that was like kind of inspiring to me because I didn't think you could do that. And are you I sure guess, it wasn't Schleiermacher? It was Schleiermacher. You're right. All the yeah. Roush, Bush, Schleiermacher. Yeah, was, of course. So yeah. I was very defensive about Schleiermacher because um, in Bible college, I was taught that he was the arch nemesis. Really? No, they said he's the reason why he he's the father of modern theology in a bad way, like modern theology being like liberal theology. Wow. He, oh, yeah. That's what they taught me in Bible college. And I immediately went and read him. I was like, oh, well, then I got to I got to read this guy. And when I read his stuff, I was like, this is a pastor. Yeah, this is a man who is trying to meet his congregation yeah. where they're at. Yeah, he's trying to apply the gospel in his context to his people. And mm. when he died, they lined the streets of Berlin. Thousands of people lined the streets of Berlin. Like he was beloved. It wasn't just like, well, yes. Okay. So he moved the goalpost of theology <laughs> to the personal experience. So what? That didn't bother me. I was like, yeah, me too. <laughs> right. But you know what? My, my personal experience is really important to me. Yeah. You know, uh, well, that brings me to your book actually, because you, you do this, um, for me, when I studied Schleiermacher, I understood him as someone who was moved by the social aspect of the gospel, which isn't really an aspect. It's central to it. You wrote in, I believe it's your first chapter, Christians who deny the social dimension of the gospel end up contributing to social injustices in the name of Jesus. And mm -hmm. so people, people attack 
uh, folks like Schleiermacher or, or others, our experience is this, um, because their, their experience of the gospel is this me and my Jesus salvation thing that you talk about. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that and sort of how Absolutely. you experience that pushback within your own experience in the church? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it really goes back to the Reformation, but you could probably trace it back to the Middle Ages yeah, where people started to become more literate and were moving out of uh, feudal feudalism and into, you know, more like um, uh, movements of, of populist movements, right? So this is, you know, the Enlightenment, all that stuff is happening, right? Mm. And so individualism is starting to form. People yeah. are starting to think of themselves apart from their clan, yeah. apart from their tribe, apart from their nation, right? And this this becomes the central kind of question that Luther asks, yeah. you know, uh, how can I have a right relationship between me and God? Yeah. How can I yeah. have a right relationship between God? So he's moving away from, well, I'm part of the church. Yeah. And that makes me right with God. He's like, yeah. no, 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 no. Apart from the church, how do I have a personal relationship with Jesus? Right. Mm. Which I'm not opposed to. I'm not opposed to having a personal relationship with Jesus. It's just not a private relationship. With yeah. Jesus. Right. Oh, okay. Can can I ask you about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, because one of the things that people, especially in our society today, are struggling with is the dominance of evangelicalism and how that experience is forced on people who don't believe even in sort of the evangelical version of God. And so people are like, well, keep it to yourself. Okay. It's private. Mm -hmm. Jesus says to pray in your closet kind of thing. There's a difference between practicing your faith in a in a way that's just steadfast and sort of humble and not, you know, blowing your trumpet in the streets about what you've done or telling other people how to practice their faith and it being a private relationship that isn't sort of uh, about wrestling in community. Those two things are are not the same. Right. So you yeah. can have your own personal relationship with the creator and also sort of be formed and forged in sort of community. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you said it well. And I would add to that, you know, there is a sense in which uh, evangelicals kind of play both sides where they yeah. say, on the one hand, stay out of politics. You know, it's just about a personal relationship with Jesus. And then on the other hand, they're imposing their morality on society at large and saying mm. things like, well, there's no real separation of church and state. Yeah. That's, that's a myth. Right. And you're like, wait a second, which one is it? Are we, yeah. are we to have this personal relationship with Jesus and stay apolitical? Yeah. Or are we to impose our, our views on sexuality onto the whole country yeah. through legislation? Mm. Which one is it? Right. And it's, it's, it's very schizophrenic and it's very hypocritical mm. and um, you know, and, and, you and I were both caught up in it. Yes. We were we were basically indoctrinated to think like to be a Christian is to be politically conservative. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. What I, one of the things that I think we can very easily do in a lot of conversations about this stuff is make it uh is it can go heady. You and I love this. This is like where we live. But what I love about the way you kick off and sort of build a foundation around your book is you get very personal and you mm -hmm. share some like really painful stuff about your childhood mm -hmm. that shaped you that sort of left you not only open to what faith in jesus 
um, would mean to you, but also what the community would mean as a result of those personal yeah. traumatic experiences as a child. Uh, I don't want to share your story. It's in the book, but do you notice that a lot of times when we get stuck in the head in like sort of our mm-hmm. frontal lobe conversations, sometimes we can miss each other mm-hmm. when we could connect on some of those more deep and painful things that lead us to needing one another and to community at large. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's something that I try to do throughout the book is weave yeah. my story uh, throughout so that people connect to me on a personal level. And it's not just about the, the quote unquote, the theology of the book. Yeah, but it's about the personal narrative of the book. So forged is my journey to understanding the way Jesus describes and demonstrates the kingdom of God. Mm. And one of the first things that I distinguish is that I think we have bought into a myth about the nuclear family. Mm. That's that's where I start. Yeah, is I think that there's this cultural ideal that has infected our imaginations in America and has taught us that the ideal is to have mom and dad, 2.5 kids, you know, and a picket fence and a, and a minivan. And this has actually never been the case. It's never been the norm. It's only been a marketing strategy. <laughs> and it's only when it actually existed for a time, a very short time from about 1950 to 1965, it only really benefited the wealthy and the white. Yeah, that's really only and and men in particular. Yeah. Um, so it's never really been good for the general populace, mm. but it 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 heaps shame on people like me who grew up without a father and grew up a single mother home, uh, no siblings, no extended family in the house, and so I feel completely um, at odds with this norm that I've yeah. been taught is the right kind of family. Yeah, and so of course you know, you got to survive somehow. So I went searching for alternative family and I found yeah. it in gang life. Yeah. And I mean, that's what you do when you're trying to survive is you, you, you build community. So, yes. um, so I, I very quickly in the book move from what, do, what do you do when family isn't family? Mm. Well, you, you create, you create family, you, yes. you, you manufacture family out of, um, the people around you. Hmm. And that can that can be really good and that can be really bad. So mm. in my case, you know, gang life um, was the closest thing I had experienced to family up until that point. Yeah. And when it broke down, when it when it failed me, it failed hard. Mm. You know, I was deeply depressed. I was deeply lonely. And where else could I turn? You know, yeah. if, if you don't have family, biological family, and you don't have um, some kind of support system in your community. Where do you turn? Right. And this is where, you know, I think the song comes in that says God sets the lonely in families. Mm. God is God is the the father to the fatherless, the defender of widows. God is the one that creates family out of out of strangers. Mm. And so, you know, when I was 16, um, a friend invited me to church and I had this powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit that utterly transformed my life. It changed the trajectory of my life. And it, it initiated me into a community where I became a beloved son of mothers and fathers who a minute ago were strangers, mm. aunties and uncles and sisters and brothers who were a minute ago strangers, right? And like I say in the book, you know, 
their laughs became the laughs of God. Their hugs became the hugs of God. They became the family of God for me. And it really changed my life. I mean, here's a, here's a practical example. My first desk job at 17, I got a desk job working at a publishing company because an elder in my church worked there. Yeah. Set me up with, with a desk job, you know, at 17. And I, I would have never had that job. Right. Another practical example is uh, my first pastor, Terry Austria, said to me, I could see you being successful in college. Mm. That was not <laughs> a thought in my head. Right. Successful in college. What <laughs> What do those words even mean? <laughs> which, I could see. Which anyone that, that, you know, I remember meeting you and being so convinced, you know, because, man, seminary culture is so much so competitive. <laughs> I wasn't really into that because like it wasn't that interesting to me, but you hearing you and a few other people debate, I'm like, man, you're the like the next, like you're going to write a book. You're going to do this someday. (laughs) I was, I've always said that to you. You're so convinced. So, but like someone who grew up the way that you did, that's not a natural path for you. No, no, no. I had a GED. I dropped out of high school. Yeah. I had a GED and I, you know, I took a few community college classes in graphic design. Yeah. And that's about it. I mean, the idea of like being successful in college was not a thing in my head. Like, <laughs> what does that even mean? Right. Does that mean getting a bachelor's degree? A bachelor's degree in what? <laughs> you know, like, it just wasn't a thing that I thought about. And so him saying that really just, it just changed my view of myself. Yeah. Right. It, 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 it imbued me with a sense of self-worth yeah. that I didn't have before that. Right. It sort of, and breathes, that's what people need. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It breathes life into not like the end goal of this life is to have a bachelor's degree, right? No, or to, no. But what it does is it it breathes life into the potential that is there. Yeah. And, and when you when you are fortunate enough to find family that is going to embrace you in that way and guide you down a path that you wouldn't have had. That's what this whole thing is about. That's what your whole purpose is, it seems, in writing this. And just in general, what your mission seems yeah. to be. Especially now, I think, in this global world that we experience uh, and the hyper sort of division that isn't necessarily new, but it's more pronounced because of how much access we have to information and to see it everywhere. I'm not sure we're, mm-hmm. we're necessarily more divided than we've ever been, but we certainly can find out about it more quickly. And, mm-hmm. and we have forces that are trying to push us to be more divided. And in that context, here you come saying, but there's a different way. Right. Right. So what I see Jesus doing, and, and this is really important to me, what I see Jesus doing is, is making a way for the natural divisions of the world, the ones that emerge out of mimetic rivalry, people wanting the same things and desiring the same things and becoming rivals, making a way for those potential rivals to become family. Yes. So this is, this is kind of the classic example. Jesus' mother and brothers, they hear of him preaching and they think he's gone insane. So they go to where he's preaching and they... They go there to take charge of him. Now, mm. now how odd is that, right? <laughs> to take charge of Jesus. The kid who they found, <laughs> the kid who they found in the temple teaching the scribes, right? And saying, I must be about my father's business. So they go to take charge of him. And somebody says, Hey, Jesus, your your mother and your brothers are here. And he says, 
who are my mother and my brother? Mm. And, and the answer he gives is those who do the will of the Lord, mm. right? Um, and this is an expansive view. This is an inclusive, abundant view of family. Suddenly, family is not biological kin. Yeah. But it is it is people that you're you're connected to in the in the purposes of God. Yeah. People that are on the same path as you, seeking the creator, seeking the common good together, mm. forging family together. And I think that this really tears down the artificial divides that the world erects. Yeah. It tears down things like race. It tears down things like gender. It tears down things like class this is why you see in the early church so much of the pastoral epistles are yeah. how do we work across these these uh potential divisions how Absolutely. do we work through conflict because those communities were diverse yeah and because they struggled those, with that exactly yeah exactly but see you wouldn't have communities like that if yeah. it wasn't for jesus's view of the kingdom of god if Jesus hadn't said, hey, you know, um, that rich centurion over there could be your brother in the faith. Yeah. If he hadn't said that, they wouldn't have been struggling with it in Corinth. <laughs> right. They wouldn't have been struggling with it in Rome. Right. 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 It wouldn't have been a problem if they weren't trying to form something new, yeah. something different yeah. than what had already existed. Yeah. And this is what guys like, I, this is not in my book, but this is what guys like Rodney Stark have documented in his book, yeah. The Rise of Christianity, is that one of the reasons why Christianity grew so rapidly is because it equalized society. Yeah. It brought people to the same table that were completely divided in society. Yeah, It brought men and women to the table. It brought slave and free to the table. It brought rich and poor, right? And, and Jew and Gentile. So you know, that's the kingdom of God is this yeah. vision of humanity being united in the creator, in the son of God on a mission to seek the shalom of the city, right? Yeah. That's the, that's the vision of the kingdom of God. Yeah. So you've got this and very clearly the message is constantly a flipping of power structures. Mm -hmm. There's always this, um, the last will be first. The first will be last. There's always absolutely. A, it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of the, you know, yeah, yeah, all of these things. And then I just, it's a very consistent message. And the fact that this, the imperial form of this religion that comes out of Jesus that gets co-opted turns into the mm -hmm. thing that is the most um, effective communicator of racial division and class mm -hmm. division is, is ultimately a crime. Um, and that is the thing that we have people railing against Jesus when, you know, it's so clear and has been for so long that he would never have been on the side of the oppressor. Right. And here he is, you know, um, still the mascot, the, the mascot of the oppressor. <laughs> yeah. Like how this guy who yeah. was crucified by the oppressor mm -hmm. be becomes him becomes yeah. the oppressor is a wild thing. So you're fighting for this reclaiming of that narrative right. because that's your experience from life. You're like, wait, no, I've experienced this. I know it's Absolutely. possible. And this other thing that I sort of, what's interesting, I guess in your path, you start out with this vision, this beautiful vision. 
you move as you get more educated, more connected to the larger thing towards mm-hmm. the empire version of it, right? Yeah. But it, yeah. but from the time I met you, it's always been uneasy for you. And so you've been yeah. sort of wanting to get back maybe to that thing that you first experienced as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's why the first couple of chapters, I really focus on my relationship with Terry. Yeah. Terry was my first pastor and he opened his life up to me in a way that was intimate and, <clears throat> and formative. Yeah. You know, um, he took me under his wing and he was like an uncle to me. Mm. And um, he showed me that to be a follower of Jesus, you didn't have to be perfect. You could mm. be human. You could have flaws. You know, he showed me that to be a follower of Jesus is, um, is a continual striving, mm. but it's a striving in joy. <laughs> and so, you know, you're right. There is a sense of like reclaiming that. When you get away from that, when you start seeing the church as an institution, when you start defending the branding, when you start defending the budget, and Oof. when you start, yeah, when you start defending the building, when, when it becomes these things, yes, I'm disgusted. I'm just like, this is not the vision of Jesus. This is not the vision of the kingdom of God that I received, that I experienced, and I think that Jesus preached. So, so that's one of the kind of the, one of the first chapters is I use this bit of analogy that when Jesus took uh, Peter, James, and John up mm. on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he is transfigured in, in front of their presence and Elijah and Moses are there, you know, they're experiencing this intimate, only three other people living have ever seen this side of Jesus. And they experience this intimate powerful demonstration and peter goes should we build a chapel should we build three chapels you know and this is the, this is the continual temptation of the western church right is yeah. to say how can we institutionalize this yeah how can we bottle this up and yeah. sell it <laughs> how can we capture this in a box right uh, and he comes down it's a fascinating story because he comes down pissed. Like Jesus is frustrated. He's like, man, come on. You well, Luke's, Luke's gospel says something like, and he didn't know what he was talking about. No, he's <laughs> Peter didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> That's Peter's story. But so ultimately, like, what do you, as someone who's a pastor and, a, and has a full-time job, you've dedicated your life to like advancing this story inviting people into this narrative yeah. with, with your life and now writing about it in this way. What do you hope that this is do you, like, what is the invitation of your book? The invitation is for people to start gathering together and forging relationships that go deep and that are centered around the person and the life and the teachings of Jesus. I don't think that has to be an institution. Mm. I don't think that has to um, have a 501c3. I don't think that has to be part of a denomination. Um, those things aren't necessarily bad. Yeah. I'm a part of a denomination. Yeah. Uh, my denomination has a 501c3. But what I've noticed in my journey is that some of the settings in which I have experienced the most profound relationships have been the most informal. Yeah, right. When, when I have been, when I have felt connected 
to other siblings in Christ on a deep level, it hasn't been because the branding was really nice and the building was really nice and the production value was really nice and the preaching was really nice or whatever Mm -hmm. consumeristic shell of a marketing strategy you could put on it. Mm -hmm. It was because our lives were intertwined and opened up to one another in what Willie James Jennings calls a mutual enfolding, Mm. right? And that can happen at a very small level. It can happen with, you know, two or three, like Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. So, you know, small groups, small groups, house churches, you know, why, why do we need, why do we need to buy a building to have forged family? I don't think that's necessary. And I'm not against buying buildings. Right. That's not the point of the book is like, don't buy a building. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, my, but my church doesn't own a building. Yeah. And I think we are forging family. I think we are building relationships. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the business of building relationships. Yes. 100%. You know, I, I think that from my experience, every time the thing became more formal, it lost something. Right. 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 Um, not to say that, that the formality is wrong, but I, I had this experience and I don't know if it's true for you because you've been a part of multiple church plants of quite a few. Um, for me, when I've started to feel like as I was going along, I'm like, well, this can't go past like five years because once it does, it's a part of the fabric of the system. Like it, it can no longer speak truth to the system. Right. And so a big, an essential part of this community is that it's not self serving. Right. Mm -hmm. It is, it must start there. Like there's right. a lot of people that need the thing that you needed as a kid to right. be said, you're a son, you're a brother, you're, you're all, you're all these things just for who you are. You need yeah. to start there. And then there's this like, well, we're a blessing to ourselves and to the city. Right. 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 Yeah. I think that's where you get into um, seeking the shalom of the city. Right. It can't be us for no more. We're in this for each other. No, the ch- the church exists for the sake of the world. Mm. So you have to be outwardly focused while you're building community, while you're building relationships. Those relationships have to be forged yeah. in such a way that it says we're on a mission together to serve and love our neighbors. Mm. So one of the chapters in the book is called Love in Public, which is obviously from a famous uh, Cornell West quote. Yeah, um, love Justice is what love looks like in public. And so... I, I genuinely believe that when you forge family in the way of Jesus, that family is going to be looking outward. Mm. It's going to be looking at its community, looking at its neighborhood and saying, who else is invited to this table? Yeah. And how can we love and serve everyone around us? And if you look out at your neighborhood and you look out at your community and you're seeing injustice, love compels you to confront that injustice. Yes. So you can't just sit idly by and say, well, you know, we're, we're the church, we're not the world, and so we, we don't get involved in politics. You can't do that. That's not, love demands more than that. Yeah. And you know as well as I do that I was there at one point. So I share openly in the book that I feel duped by uh, a political philosophy that I call both sides. Mm. I was totally duped by both sides. I used to say, well, you know, there it's complicated, Dave. <laughs> you can't really take sides. Come on, you know, like, the left is just as bad as the right, you know, yeah. and, and I used to do that. And I think 
2015 woke me up. Yeah, I'm right, right with you. I, 2015 woke me up, man. I said, wait a second. <laughs> it was my it was my Bonhoeffer moment. You know, yeah, I, I realized yeah. there's a guy who is a direct, imminent threat to my neighbors hmm. and to me and yeah. to my family. Yeah. And this can't stand. I can't stand on the sidelines and watch this go down and say, oh, it's not my place or we should stay out of it. Yeah. No, love compels me to get in the fight. Yeah. And I think Absolutely. about guys like John Lewis, man. John mm -hmm. Lewis is one of my heroes mm -hmm. and a, a devout follower of Jesus. And he he would say that democracy is a nonviolent solution to conflict. Mm. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. And another another uh, kind of hero of mine, kind of a more more recent hero is Raphael Warnock, who said yeah. a vote is like a prayer, mm. you know, and following in the footsteps of John Lewis. John Lewis was one of his congregants, you know, and yes, I, I, I was really down on the political system in 2014. <laughs> we, we were talking about this in 2014. We sure were. <laughs> and in 2015, I realized. Oh, democracy is really important. Yeah, we need to, we need to preserve this democracy. Yeah, I, and I think you know to be fair to us, we were on this path of learning uh, what you know it meant to pledge allegiance to a particular right, thing, right. right. So yeah. for us, it was well. If I pledge allegiance to what we then called the kingdom of God, and I'd love for you to talk about that kingdom instead. Yeah. Um, we can't possibly pledge allegiance to the red, white, and blue, which means we don't right. participate in the same ways. It's very sort of Anabaptist. Yes. Um, you know, which is why the Amish don't vote and all sorts of things like that. Um, yeah. So it was coming out of this place of seeking to be faithful to yes. the person you're still trying to be faithful to. And it's yes. just, it's just learning and growing. Um, but do you mind sharing about uh, where this phrase or, or this term, the kingdom comes from, which you do talk briefly about in your book and is not your uh, invention. No. Um, so yeah, if you, if you got to give, I got to give credit yeah. to sister, Dr. Asasi Diaz for yeah. that concept. Um, what she argues, and I think very compellingly is that in the 20th and the 21st centuries, when we think of a kingdom, there's real, it's really interconnected with patriarchy and with violence. Kingdoms were imposed upon people. Yeah. And so she argues that really, if we're translating or applying Jesus's concept of the kingdom of God, the reign of God yeah. into 21st century life, it's more akin, <laughs> ironically, <laughs> nice <laughs> pun, pun not intended, but uh, it's pretty good but, yeah <laughs> but but it works it's it's more like a kingdom than a kingdom yeah and i and i really like that and i really agree with that i think yeah. jesus was preaching and demonstrating an expansive view of humanity as all human beings right rightly related to one another yeah and rightly related to god yeah and rightly related to creation that shalom picture of wholeness and harmony is more like a family. It's more mm. like expansive kingdom than a bureaucratic structure imposed from above. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah. So that's, yeah. So that's the contrast. Yeah. All right. TC, I mean, first time author here. 
<laughs> not not real. I mean, you've been writing for a long time. You've been like, mm -hmm. you've been very active in your ministry and your pursuit of of all of this. You've learned a lot, and at this point, I have have sort of gone down all these different streams of Christian thought. You've done Pentecostalism, mm -hmm. Baptist, Anabaptist. You're sort of expressing this thing that is the culmination of your life's work up to this point. Mm -hmm. um, what has this book sort of meant for you in terms of, does it come out of this, this place of wanting more what you have now, or is it still aspirational? I think some authors write books out of seasons of their lives where, you know, they did a deep dive into, you know, Jeremiah or they did a deep dive into tithing or something like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and once they've written the book, they sort of move on to the next thing. Yeah. This is more core to who I am hmm. and more core to my sense of calling in life. Yeah. So I don't think I'm going to move on from this, this book in the way that some authors move on from their early work. I think this is not only my been my experience for the last 23 years, yeah. but it's my current experience. And I, and it's my aspiration that I hope I will continue to be a part of forging family for the rest of my life. Um, in fact, I, I do talk about my current church in the book. Mm. Um, one of the things that drew me to Roots um, back six years ago when we moved to St. Paul was that their, their, their view of themselves was as a community of misfits. Mm. And I really resonated with that. Yeah. I said, man, I have always felt like a misfit. I've always felt like I was just kind of on the outside looking in and didn't quite know how to like fake it till I make it, you know, just like, I don't know how to go through the motions, you know, and, <laughs> and act like I'm churchy, you know, and just like fit in. You know, like I, I just was always kind of the weirdo or either the weirdo or a gadfly, like, oh, that guy again, you know, he's asking, <laughs> he's asking more questions or he's, or he's pointing out more indiscrepancies, you know, discrepancies, you know, and, um, so I really, I really resonated with that community of misfits ethos. And it's been something that I've, I've lived into as a pastor. And I see it more and more all around me that I think we all at some level feel like we don't quite fit in, right? Because we're all unique in our own ways. Um, of, of course, we, we find our people, we find our, our tribe, so to speak. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of like, I'm just going to go with the flow until I really am doing what everyone else is doing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think about it like, you know, like high school, the clicks in high school, right? Like what, which click am I part of? Right. Uh -huh. We all do that. But I think what's different about the body of Christ is you don't have to fake it till you make it. Hmm. You could just come authentically as you are. I think it's Brene Brown that said, you know, like belonging is not, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher the quote. It's in the book. <laughs> but belonging requires you to show up as you authentically are. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing. No, but, it's so, it's so true. And this is like such a message that, as you know, is a very, is not a very common one that people experience in the church more often than not, they're hearing the opposite message. And right, you're saying that right. that is not the case reclaiming what you know to be the truth of that first community that Jesus was trying to form. Um, yeah. You know and I should, and I should say, you know, so 
listeners could get the impression that I have kind of a Pollyannish view of the church, but the very, the, the second chapter of the book, I confront the, the evils that are inherent in that institutionalization process, yeah. right? I confront the, even my own blind spots, right? So yeah. I, I mentioned in the book that I was doing a teaching series at my church on uh, the church as forged family. And, and one of the members of my church said, you know, when I think of family, I think of exclusivity. Yes. And I was like, whoa, see, there you go. I needed that. I needed to hear that because I have experienced such a beautiful, profound sense of forged family that sometimes I forget that family for other people can can have connotations of uh, we're insiders and you're outsiders. We're part of the family. You're not part of the family. And what we know now is that corporations are trying to co-opt this language. Oh, we're not we're not Target. We're a family. <laughs> we're not Walmart. We're a family. You know, and so this this concept of family can be so manipulative. And I confront yes. that in the very sec the second chapter of the book because I I didn't want to get off on the wrong foot. I didn't want readers to get off on the wrong foot and say, "Oh, he doesn't get it." You know, he doesn't understand that this kind this this view can be easily used to to harm people. Hmm. So I talk about uh, you know Scott McKnight's book, A Church Called Tove, yeah. um, how you can recognize the the um, uh, you know the red flags. The, the signs of narcissism, the signs yeah. of toxicity, the signs of churches protecting themselves, mm. you know, circling the wagons and protecting the brand and all that stuff. That's really important that we that we see that. Yes. Um, so that you don't think that, oh, TC is just saying that, you know, all churches are great. No, I'm not. In no. fact, I tell I tell <laughs> I tell stories in the book of churches I had to leave. Yeah. Anyone that knows you would know that you wouldn't be out there like saying <laughs> that. But also one of the most beautiful things that I think is consistent throughout your book is that you're you're so often leaning on the understanding and wisdom of black, brown, and indigenous and other people of color throughout Absolutely. your um, theologians, just in, uh, people who have have influenced you you're, that you've known, but also just scholars. Absolutely. And that's something that we don't hear enough from white evangelical circles. You'll read, you and I have read enough theological mm -hmm. books written by yep. white guys that quote other white guys mm -hmm. that sort of keep this institution going and how important it is that if we're going to be forged into this kind of community you're talking about, it requires us to listen a lot more yep. to the voices of people who have not had a voice in this society, for sure. And that was one of the things that forged you and me as yes. brothers. Yes. Was our our exposure to another view from below. Yeah. You know, Sung Chan and Eldon Viafanye, they really cracked open another side of Christianity for us. Yes. You know, what was cracked that like? Open is seven, the right. seven, 17 years 17 ago. 17 years like ago. Yeah. yeah. You know what's funny? 17 years ago, you looked like you do now. And I'm, it's, <laughs> it might be like the 42 year old eyes that we still look good. But like the hat, the hoodie. And I probably was wearing this hat too, you know? Like, but we both had that sort of misfit thing, but mm -hmm. I wasn't sure of myself the way you were. But I look in that back row and I see a guy, a white dude, which was weird, weird enough, with a hat and a hoodie, 
arguing at our school. We were at, at our, our school. school, right? Yeah, yeah. You we know? were we were one of like two or three white guys. <laughs> yeah, right. It's true, and it, it got more as we as time went on. I think I was there for ten years or something. But like, <laughs> me too. Yeah. Me too. yeah, like our paths have been so interestingly mm -hmm. similar. Mm -hmm. and I was just... on the ten year track for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but like seeing the way that you are who you are and you've been who you are but yeah. not in a stubborn way in a way that's like well this is who i authentically am mm -hmm. and i'm i'm actually gonna like i'm gonna make sure that who i am because i've been accepted in this kind of community because i know the power of it i'm mm -hmm. gonna continue to live into that that thing has always been contagious yeah uh and it just flows out of you and i think like honestly I didn't know you as an author. I've never known you as an author and who you are sort of screams out of these pages the same way that you are as a person. Um, and I think that's such a, it's such a beautiful thing that like, you never know how it's going to turn out. You know what I mean? <laughs> Especially once other people get their hands on it. It's like, is TC going to speak through here? Is this going to be something else? And it's you and it's, it's beautiful, man. One of the most profound moments in my journey um, of understanding forged family was when I caught hold of the concept of cultural hybridity. And I remember the moment. Um, I couldn't quite put my finger on it until yeah. Brian Bantam named it. Brian Bantam, um, uh, who's a brilliant theologian, um, author of The, the Death of Race and yeah. um, Redeeming Mulatto. I mean, just a brilliant theologian. Um, and, and married to Gail Song Bantam, yep. who's a brilliant theologian in her own right. Um, so he was talking about the myth of multiculturalism hmm. and I tuned in, man. I was like, wait a second. I, yeah. I was taught multiculturalism was a good thing. Right. How is Brian Bantam critiquing multiculturalism? Hmm. And what he said was multiculturalism assumes that cultures are these static things. Hmm. They're, they're hermetically sealed boxes that you have your culture, I have my culture, and never the two shall meet, right? Yeah, yeah. And we can appreciate each other's cultures, but there's no sharing. And what he said was, mm, that's not really how culture works. Yeah, Culture is not static. Culture is dynamic. Culture is always changing. Culture is always sharing, ad adapting. And he said, really, what we should be striving for is not multiculturalism, but cultural hybridity. Yeah. And that was like a turning point. I was like, that's the thing that I've experienced. Yeah. It, it, it put a name to the to the forging of family that I've experienced across cultures. Yeah. Right. When I've been a part of churches where I've had to lean into patience and um put my whiteness to the side and say, you know, maybe there's another way of seeing things. Yeah. Maybe there's another perspective. And I've had to be patient and I've had to be uncomfortable. That's something that's really hard for white people to do is to be uncomfortable for any length of time. Oh, this church, this church is not comfortable for me. So what? <laughs> Lean into it. You should probably Lean... be there. <laughs> <laughs> Lean into that discomfort. Maybe yeah. you'll learn something. Yeah. And, and so when I've been in those spaces where I've learned from my discomfort, why do I feel uncomfortable here? Hmm. Right. What is, what is making me feel uncomfortable? Oh, the music isn't what I like. Oh, oh, the timing isn't what I like. It's not it's not a, a tight hour service. <laughs> oh, oh, no. God that's forbid our, it go over an hour. Right. That's our Pentecostalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, and when I've leaned into that, I have grown. Yeah. And I and I have 
gained insight and gained perspective and appreciation and humility. Um, Shout out to, you know, Dennis Edwards, his new book, uh, Humility Illuminated. I mean, Mm -hmm. he talks a lot about this. It's like, if you're going to be part of the body of Christ, part of humility means being uncomfortable and learning from people who see things differently than you do. Man, you don't that's... have all the answers. You haven't <laughs> arrived. So it's time to take, you know, take a posture of a learner. Yeah. I mean, that's like everything that's, that is the path to humility that like is very hard for those of us that are white mm-hmm. dudes to come by. <laughs> yeah. Because if all of society is tailored to you, mm-hmm. if everything is made for you, <laughs> you know, then it's very difficult for you to say, oh, you know, um, I'm going to, I'm going to intentionally sit in a space that's not made for me. Hmm. Yeah, Cause you get your... so comfortable having everything tailored to you. Well, that's really, and ultimately because there's no incentive, right? Right. You know, the incentive of being uncomfortable, you know, that what it leads to is the thing that you write about. What it leads to is a more beautiful, hopeful, just community mm-hmm. that is like, is pursuing shalom the way that you talk about it and it's just because you know that that's your hope then you're like okay i'm willing to sit myself back i'm going to be in the back of the room here that's not something that everyone is willing to do because there's no incentive or they don't they don't see the incentive they don't know exactly they can't see it and we haven't given people enough reason to believe that that's possible right and i i love that about your book that there's there is this longing and it's tethered to to something in reality you're not mm-hmm. this pollyannish thing that someone might that you foresee someone might think it is tethered to this no this this can really be it has been and this is what we're moving closer to it requires mm-hmm. this cultural hybridity it requires humility all of these things that um for those of us that are white guys especially is the hardest to come by but the mm-hmm. most important for us to lean into Another guy that I have to give a shout out to, and you're you're going to appreciate this, is Brother E. Brother E oh. gets a gets a shout out in this book, and it's for a very good reason. Yeah, as you know, um, Brother E passed away a few years ago, and um, he was absolutely a brother that we, you and I, forged family with. Yeah, I mean we we've been through some some experiences with brother E (laughs) (laughs) and, and brother E had such an impact on me, such a, um, a profound and deep connection. You know, I I just remember spending time with him at Pilgrim Pines and his family and his daughter and his wife and, and just feeling like family, feeling like we were part of his extended family and and, and he was part of our extended family. And one of the things that brother E uh, would emphasize, and I know you've heard him say this, is he did not pastor a hip hop church. Right. <laughs> right. People would say, Oh, brother E, I'm so, I, your, your church is so cool. You know, you pastor a hip hop church. And he said, I don't, I don't call your church a guitar church. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Remember when he used to say that? Yes. I loved that. And then he, he learned guitar. Say, yeah. He would just say, this is my culture. Yeah. This church is contextual to my neighborhood to my culture, to my, to my block, to my people. And I love that about brother. E. He taught mm-hmm. us 
cultural contextualization. He taught us cultural hybridity. Yeah. Um, and I'll never forget, I interviewed him, you know, for <laughs> when I had a podcast, <laughs> I interviewed him. <laughs> um, and he told me the story of when he fell in love with hip hop. It was when he heard Rapper's Delight for the first time. Mm. And it was that line about the black, the white, the yellow, the red, right? Like he saw it as a unifying force in the world. Yeah, He saw hip hop as a way of bringing people together around art and life and music and culture. Right. Mm. And I mean, that was my experience too. Yeah. Right. So, so that's, that's what drew me to brother E when I oh. met brother E, I was starstruck. I said, you're brother E, you know, like I knew you from rap fest, <laughs> right? Like I knew you before you were a covenant church planter. <laughs> you were, you were brother E. Yeah, man. He was a special one. Thank you for yeah. bringing him up. And yeah, he deserves as many shout outs as possible. And I think it's important to point out that this vision of all of these cultures coming together, this mm -hmm. vision that the Christian scriptures write about, talk about experience is not the same thing that a lot of us grew up with in the eighties and nineties, which was color blindness. Right. right? And, and yeah. far too often that's the quick move. Oh yeah. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no, male or female. Right. So we're right. colorblind. We're, we're gender blind or whatever. And that's, right. there's the lack of, th that's where the, the lack of ability to say that we're both formed as I, our own personal identities in relationship to ourselves, mm -hmm. to the creator, all that sort of stuff. And then also to each other, you don't forsake that individual identity right to be part of this thing and that distinction without yeah. division yes right 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 distinction without division yeah that's that's a really important point i bring that up in the chapter called swimming lessons because another another person who had a profound impact on me is dr richard twist mm. and i'll never forget from his first book uh one church many tribes, many tribes yeah he tells the story of as a new christian a new follower of jesus he was trying to figure out what it means to be a Native American and a follower of Jesus. Yeah. And, and the first advice that he received was horrible. It yeah. was, don't worry about being an Indian, Richard, just be like us. Oof. And he says in the book that for eight years, he tried to be like us, to follow this white washed evangelical version of Christianity and he says in the book, it was less than what God wanted for me. Hmm. God wanted me to live into my identity as a Native American person, as a Lakota Sioux person, and as, and as a follower of Jesus. And that was so meaningful to me. I remember, you know, just hearing that and being like, yes, that resonated so deeply with my soul. Yeah. You know, and I also I also talk about in the book that White people need to understand how whiteness is an erasure of their ethnicity as well. Yes. When I was a kid and I heard that my mom's side of the family was Irish, I went to my grandfather and I said, what does it mean to be Irish? And he said, oh, you know, we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. And I said, everybody celebrates St. Patrick's <laughs> Day. That's not special. And he said, oh, well, then I guess we're just white. Yeah. And that was a, a turning point for me. It was like, well, then whiteness is something that has robbed me of of something valuable yes. it has robbed me of a connection to my ancestry, to my heritage. And that's what whiteness does. It erases ethnic origins and heritages 
in order to consolidate political power. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope this conversation inspired some new thoughts or questions within you. Until next time, peace, my friends.